This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is work, time, and money. In the first half, Michael Middleton shares his 2015 address, Adding Stars to Your Life's Sky. Then in the second half, Jeffrey Hill speaks on money matters, living joyfully within your means. Here's Michael Middleton, Assistant Athletic Director and Director of the BYU Cougar Club at the time of this address. Ralph Waldo Emerson once wrote, If the stars should appear only one night in a thousand years, how would men believe and adore and preserve for many generations the remembrance of the city of God which had been shown in the heavens? End quote. Gazing upward into the blazing splendor of the night sky, we see thousands of distant stars and even more distant galaxies. This is truly amazing. And our reaction to it is equally remarkable. Think about what we do when we stargaze. Seeing the light that left some distant suns about the time Columbus sailed for the New World, we immediately start creating associations between completely unrelated spheres—stars that are tens or hundreds of light years from each other, and often even further from the Earth. Making such mental connections gives them familiarity and meaning, and we begin to see the stars not only as separate points of light but as constellations—a scorpion, a hunter named Orion, or a Big Dipper. And admittedly, I am really bad at this. Maybe you are too. Looking at this particular group of stars, how many of you immediately thought, wow, look, there's a dragon? Look at those stars and be honest. What would you have called this constellation? Fortunately for Draco, he was named and known long before I was born. If it had been left to me, these stars might have been called the angry worm or very long and tangled kite string. There are, however, practical uses for such astronomical ink blots. Try this. Show your significant other pictures of various constellations and ask what he or she sees. If his answers are various types of weapons or characters from Middle Earth, or if she replies, I see a diamond engagement ring three out of four times, perhaps you should imitate the ancient mariners who navigated by the stars and make a course correction. One further proof of my own astrological incompetence. For many years, I thought I was seeing all of Ursa Major, or the Big Bear, which candidly to me looked a lot like a Big Dipper. In fact, I thought the Big Dipper and the Big Bear were simply two names for the same group of seven stars, until a wise friend explained that the Big Dipper is not a constellation at all, but merely an asterism or part of a constellation. I learned that you must include another 12 stars for the Big Dipper to become the Big Bear. Now, obviously, I had seen those stars before, but I had failed to recognize how they connected to and expanded what I already knew. Similarly, in the few minutes we share together today, I propose to offer four points of light for your consideration in hopes by thinking about them together and by connecting them to stars already in your life sky, they will provide you with additional illumination and with greater direction in your life while at BYU and beyond. The first concept is simply this, work is work. Work is work, and that's okay. It's acceptable, normal, expected, and part of the plan. Whether you are a BYU student, faculty member, or staff employee, if you don't like work, you have come to the wrong university. 
and likely to the wrong planet. Schoolwork, missionary work, homework, and housework, the part-time job you have now, and the full-time career you may one day take on, each of these will be work in all of its four-letter glory. A former teacher of mine was well over 300 pounds when he went skiing for the first time. New to the sport and unfamiliar with the resort, he asked for directions and a cruel stranger sent him to a black diamond run. Exiting the lift for the first time, he experienced a short-lived slide of sheer terror, which ended when he crashed violently, embedding himself into the deep snow at the base of a mogul. Now it was uphill both ways, and he was tangled in his skis and stuck, by his own description, like a beached whale in the snow. He found by gyrating his entire body he could plow forward a few inches at a time. As difficult and painstaking as this process was, much more frustrating were the scores of experienced skiers speeding by him with no concern for his plight. Finally, a female skier swooshed to a perfect stop next to him and the several-foot-long trail in the snow that represented his efforts over the last 45 minutes. Do you need any help? She asked brightly. To him, it was so painfully obvious that he did. His temper got the best of him, and he looked up and curtly replied, No, lady, this is what I came here to do. Insulted, or puzzled perhaps, she skied away, leaving him, <laughs> leaving him for another hour of belly flopping before he was finally free to hike down the mountain carrying his rented skis. On days that I feel stuck, when progress is slow or non-existent, when my life's tasks seem difficult, repetitive, or fruitless, when I have days that any help sought for seems unforthcoming or insufficient for my needs, it has helped me to remember that wonderful line, this is what I came here to do and to recognize that life's work and life's struggles, even the most difficult and mundane aspects of our existence, are truly at least part of what we came here to do. The very injunction from Heavenly Father to Adam and Eve and to us as, our, as their posterity that we would earn our bread by the sweat of our brows implies that not every task in this life will be easy or enjoyable. Even with all His glory, God Himself talks about His work, and we would be well to consider, his, to consider and emulate His focus, His devotion, and His power of engagement. We learn that our immortality and our eternal life are His sole vocation. Nowhere in the scriptures are we told about God's hobbies, what He does with His downtime, or how many exciting vacations He has taken. It is both inspiring and frightening to realize that a being of perfect understanding and unlimited power is focused on and committed to our eternal growth and happiness. I testify that He works at this much harder than you or I do. Always our example. From his earliest years, Christ was ever about his Father's business. Jesus explained, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh wherein no man can work, and my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work." End quote. We too then must work, remembering that we have been commanded to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. In verbs that are diverse, instructive, and powerful, the scriptures also lovingly command us to learn of the Savior, to strip ourselves of all uncleanness, to prepare every needful thing, to counsel with the Lord, and to come unto Christ and be perfected in Him. Not only are we to improve ourselves and repent of our sins, we must also be ready and willing to work in the fields of eternity to bless our own families and the lives of others. Those of you who are preparing for missions, please notice that the very letter that you will receive from the prophet will say, you are called to serve and you are assigned to labor. All of us would do well to clearly define where and how we are currently called to labor, recognizing that our work of necessity must always be inexorably tied to the work of our Savior and of our Father. 
We are to be men and women of accomplishment and action. It is inconsistent to expect God to guide our footsteps if we are unwilling to move our feet. Among the Savior's many miracles recorded in the New Testament is the healing of ten lepers who approached him pleading, Master, have mercy on us. The Savior did, sending them back to their families, their friends, and their former lives. An important part of this story, however, that initially escaped my attention is how he healed them, revealed in three small but potentially life-changing words. Luke 17, 14 tells us the lepers were healed not standing on the roadside or kneeling at the Savior's feet, but rather, quote, as they went. And so it will be with us. As we act, our paths will become clear. Weak things can become strong. And seeds we've planted in faith will swell and sprout and grow so that we know of their goodness. Yet too, all too often, in both temporal and spiritual matters, more of us talk the talk than walk the walk, or in this case, work the work. With the tasks that are your responsibility, do you sign your work with excellence, giving your best regardless of recognition or reward, or do you work just hard enough to get by? When I was a teenager, my father was called to be the Centerville 8th Ward's welfare coordinator. I quickly learned what this meant. Each month, he was one of the volunteers, and so was I. We worked at a grain processing plant owned by the church where large bags of oatmeal and other products were packaged into smaller containers for use in the bishop's storehouses. Working by his side, I learned a lot from my dad's example. Although he was in his later years, he was often the one who climbed the steep ladder into the loft to buck 40-pound bags into the hopper while younger men joked below. Always he was the one insisting we finish the shift even when the quota was already reached. Every night he was the one ensuring the facility was cleaned and secured and ready for the next use, regardless of who stayed to help. He taught me without words that exactness, effort, and sacrifice should be part of our daily labor and that an obscure two-story oat plant was not only part of the Lord's kingdom but also a proving ground for His servants. A second star to consider, time is precious. As we work, may we each consider that our time and strength are limited. One of the constraints of immortal probation is that we must be selective about how and where and with whom we spend our time. Mortality's arena of agency itself forces us to make choices. As immortal children of an eternal Heavenly Father, it is expected that we will not only learn to discern between good and evil, but also to choose wisely from among good, better, and best. On the east transept of the Memorial Church at Stanford University are engraved these mighty words, quote, The best thoughts, affections, and aspirations of a great soul are fixed on the infinitude of eternity. Destined as such a soul is for immortality, it finds all that is not eternal too short, all that is not infinite too small, end quote. As you choose your majors, your friends, and your classes at BYU, you are shaping eternity. The Savior instructs us, quote, Settle this in your hearts, that you will do the things which I shall teach and command you, end quote. And then he teaches that all who are wise stewards over their own actions and resources should first sit down and count the cost of the things they want to accomplish. While life lasts, you have the unparalleled opportunity to change and to grow. It does not matter what mistakes you have made, what sins you have committed, how often you have failed, or how awfully you have fallen short of your dreams or your potential in the past. Your future days are spotless and beckoning. Unfortunately, none of us know which day in mortality will be our last. In 1989, I was a volunteer helping with new student orientation. That was the day I met Chris Felstead on the last day of his life. I found Chris on the ground where he had collapsed. He would never get up again. As we realized his peril, a friend started CPR while I summoned the paramedics. 
One of you seated here today may be the recipient of the BYU scholarship that bears his name, funded by the endowment his loving parents created with the college fund set aside for him in memory of their amazing son, who was admitted to BYU but graduated to his heavenly home before his first day of class. The uncertainty and fragility of mortality remind us that every day is sacred and every hour is important for whether you perceive that your life at this moment offers much or little, your life, the only one you have, is now. Poets and philosophers have observed that tombstones each have a birth date and a date of death, two dates that are often separated only by a simple dash. And yet the summary of our choices are displayed and the range of our individual opportunities in eternity are determined by what we do with the dash. Your time at BYU, just like your time in mortality, will have a beginning and an end. Choose wisely what you do with your dash. As you do, please remember that many of BYU's best classes are not found in the catalog. They have no official course numbers and are taught only for those with eyes to see, often in the simple examples of the amazing people BYU has drawn here to be your friends and your faculty, your co-workers and your custodians. For example, for me, Compassion 401 was taught by a loving former BYU professor named Douglas Gibb. Let me share a sample of the curriculum. I didn't know Dr. Gibb when I arrived for the first day of a communications class he taught. I only knew that the classroom was overcrowded and that before we could get started he would need to dismiss many unregistered students who were now trying to add the class. Looking us over, he simply asked, How many of you are registered for this class? About two-thirds of us raised our hands. Read chapter one, he told us. See you on Wednesday. And with that, we were excused. I went into the hallway but decided to turn back and watch. Dr. Gibb talked to every student in the room. Where there was a necessity for graduation or other circumstances, he added someone, but mostly he just got to know them one by one. No one left the room without feeling his concern or receiving his help. Almost embarrassed, he explained, quote, I've just reached the point in my life where I don't want to offend anyone, not even my cat, end quote. <laughs> Both now and then, Dr. Gibb is the type of man I want to be. And over the short dash of my undergraduate time at BYU, I came to know him both as a friend and as a mentor. He changed my life and the lives of many others by the way he taught both inside and outside BYU's classrooms. Third, storms are certain. No matter who you are, your life will have storms. You will encounter discouragement, doubt, and defeat. The difficulties you will face will amaze and overwhelm you at times, but it is your very response to such trials that will build your character and determine your destiny. A student in the YSA ward where I serve as bishop once explained, quote, One of the life's lessons I've learned from playing video games is that if you find a path without any enemies, it doesn't lead anywhere, end quote. This may be the only actual valuable similarity between Halo and real life. <laughs> I beg you not to play thousands of hours trying to prove me wrong. Opposition in life is necessary, but setbacks and struggles need not become frantic fear or debilitating discouragement. A tall freshman girl who came to Provo from Kansas said her upbringing in the Jayhawk State had made her a good basketball player and an experienced trash talker long before she enrolled at BYU. Arriving on campus, she quickly found out when and where basketball tryouts would be and went to the Richards Building on the appointed day. Once there, however, her fears got the best of her, and though dressed and ready to play, she never went in. For three hours, she paced in the hallway, unwilling to leave but unable to risk failing at a dream so big. Many years later, she learned from the coach that BYU's basketball team that year had played all season one player short. 
The coach had been looking for a tall forward who could play inside, but the right girl never stepped forward. Please, make your life a series of risks taken and opportunities realized. Never back down when you have a talent and you know how you want to use it. This former student carried this experience with her throughout her life, and it gave her the resolve and the power to open many other doors, both for herself and for others. I share this story with her permission. Her name is Sherry Dew, the current CEO of Deseret Book, who recently returned to our campus as a convocation speaker. All of us who plan to reach the tree of life must be prepared to encounter mists of darkness and to endure shouts of derision from a building that is both tall and spacious. Whether your intended career is in business, politics, science, sports, or music, there will be plenty of negative voices and a myriad of opportunities to give up or tap out. Consider the criticism and setbacks experienced by several prominent people along with the eventual outcome. Early in life, Albert Einstein was called the dopey one and struggled to speak. He was expelled from one school and refused admission to another. He worked as a patent clerk before changing humanity's understanding of the universe and becoming the personification of genius. Wilma Rudolph was born prematurely and contracted polio as a child. Eventually, her once paralyzed left leg was fitted into a metal brace in hopes she could somehow hobble her way through life. Instead, one step, one struggle, one race at a time, she endured until she became the fastest woman in the world and the winner of three Olympic gold medals. Thomas Edison was fired from two jobs and described as, quote, too stupid to learn anything, end quote. Before he died, he was the holder of 1,093 U.S. patents, including inventions such as the phonograph, the motion picture camera, and after more than 1,000 unsuccessful attempts, the incandescent light bulb. Another who faced great adversity, heartbreak, and failure once described his feelings in these words, quote, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth, end quote. Abraham Lincoln also saved the nation and changed the world through his wisdom, character, and courage. So if you failed a test or had your heart broken or lost a loved one or an election or an intramural basketball game or been fired from a job, welcome to the club. You are now in the company of the greatest heroes in Earth's history. What you do next will make all the difference. We humbly worship one who was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief who descended below all things. He was ridiculed and reviled and rejected and then betrayed in the closest and most cruel manner imaginable. The scriptures say he had no form or comeliness that we should desire him and that we hid our faces from him. Even as he was wounded for our transgressions, healed us with his stripes and engraved us everlastingly on the palms of his hands through the miracle we call the atonement. A fourth and final star, know who and whose you are. Our divine origin and our eternal possibilities should determine our aspirations, our attitudes, and our actions. One of the great examples of this idea of identity determining destiny was displayed at the 1997 NCAA Cross Country Championships. The national meet was held on a Monday, which meant Sunday was the last preparation day prior to the race. As the other teams scouted the course, took training runs, stretched and strategized, the BYU women's team attended church, hosted a fireside, and held a team testimony meeting. The Sabbath day was sacred, and they were not willing to compromise. At their team meeting, one coach read these prophetic words, quote, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. End quote. Kesa Monahan, a five-foot-three sophomore from Hawaii, read the team from a less sacred text, the children's book, The Little Engine That Could. 
pointing out that the little engine is the only train in the story that is blue. At the race course the next day, the team gathered in a circle. They put their arms around each other and they prayed. On the tarp where they stored their bags, one of the team had written, we will win because we love each other. And because we love for each other, we will do for each other what is too hard to do for ourselves. When 184 of the best cross-country runners in the nation were called to the starting line, seven of them were wearing cougar blue. The starter's gun fired. Each girl did what was needed. Each trusted in herself, in her teammates, in her coaches, and in God. With four runners in for each team, the Cougars still trailed Stanford, but there was a chance, depending on the placement, of the fifth runner from each school. In the last hundred meters of that 5K race, Kesa Monahan was inadvertently knocked to the ground. Her teammate, Emily Nay, sprinted past her to finish as the Cougars' fifth runner and lock in BYU's score. Now, the championship depended solely on where Stanford's fifth runner placed. Courageously, Kesa got back up and beat the Stanford girl to the finish line displacing her by one spot to give BYU the victory with a score of 100 to 102. They became the first BYU's team to win a national title, winning by the narrowest margin of victory in the history of NCAA cross country. President Worthen has invited us to climb mountains, both physical and spiritual, because he knows part of the strength that is a mountain becomes ours as we ascend. As we follow his inspired counsel, our views become broader. We draw closer to the divine, and like the mountains, we become steadfast and immovable. It was on a high mountain that the prophet Moses learned both who and whose he was. This mighty prophet, whose teachings and ministry are seminal to the beliefs of three major world religions, was powerfully taught face to face by God. You are my son. You are in the similitude of mine only begotten, and I have a work for you to do. The message was clear and repeated. Couldn't the same be said for each one of us? I testify that it is true, that you are a son or daughter of our Heavenly Father, that you have traits, gifts, and callings that make you like the Savior, and that our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ have work for you to do. Moses would later stand against the most powerful nation on earth, feed thousands in the wilderness, part the waters of the Red Sea, and lead his people to the promised land, all because he knew who and whose he was. We come to BYU and attend church and read the scriptures not only to come to know about Christ, but to come to know him. As we serve in our callings and in our communities, we are given opportunities both to be like him and to become better acquainted. As King Benjamin described it, quote, For how knoweth a man a master whom he hath not served, and who is a stranger to him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? End quote. As we come to know who and whose we are, it becomes easier to sign our work with excellence and to see our efforts not only as part of a personal test, but also as part of an eternal plan. Thought to have made some of the greatest musical instruments ever created while living in Italy in the 1700s, Antonio Stradivari was a craftsman whose name became synonymous with his work. In her piece, Stradivarius, writer Mary Ann Evans imagined the self-defining drive that might have allowed Stradivari to create violins that would come to define who and whose he was. Quote, when any man holds twixt chin and hand a violin of mine, they will be glad that Stradivari lived, made violins, and made them the best. The masters only know whose work is good, and they will choose mine. For while God gives them skill, I give them instruments to play upon, God choosing me to help him. For even God himself could not make Antonio Stradivari's violins without Antonio." End quote. 
Individually and collectively, our destiny lies in our ability to connect the points of light in our life so that we can see the broad patterns of eternity. As we work hard, choose wisely, overcome opposition, and exercise faith in the Atonement and the plan of salvation, we begin to recognize that our destiny is not to gaze longingly into the night sky, but to create and organize the stars and to dwell eternally in the heavens. The Savior Himself has taught us, quote, And this is life eternal, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. End quote. May we truly come to know them as we work and study and serve at BYU and beyond. May we live each day with gratitude, deciding what we will do with our short dash of mortality. May we weather the winds and survive life's inevitable storms with courage and perspective that is fueled by knowing with ever more certainty both who and whose we are. And may we continue to connect points of light in our lives, recognizing that they illuminate the pathway home. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is work, time, and money. We've just heard from Michael Middleton. After the break, we'll return with Dr. Jeffrey Hill and Money Matters, living joyfully within your means. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is work, time, and money. Next, Dr. Jeffrey Hill, a professor in the BYU School of Family Life at the time of this address, shares Money Matters, Living Joyfully Within Your Means. The topic today is important both temporally and spiritually. I invite you to listen with both your mind and your heart. Each year I teach almost a thousand BYU students about family finance in SFL 260. Oddly enough, the purpose of this course is not to teach students how to get rich. Instead, the goal is to help students gain a stewardship perspective and wisely manage money to joyfully strengthen family relationships. As a bonus, this class fulfills the quantitative reasoning general education requirement. At the beginning of each semester, I tell my class to remember three things, and I invite you to do the same. First, life is hard, but you can do hard things. With the help of the Lord, you can do anything He wants you to do, even balance a budget or invest in a mutual fund. Second, when life doesn't go as planned, don't get frustrated. Make the best of it. Most of the time, things don't go as planned, especially in financial matters. And if you don't make the best of it, you'll spend most of your life feeling frustrated. And finally, third, T, T, T. Things take time. In fact, the best financial plan is the Get Rich Slowly plan, where you safely and systematically invest. Whenever I talk about finances, I'm reminded of a story I heard about a college freshman who didn't budget very well. He kept running out of money before he ran out of month. One night, the student texted home, No mun, no fun. Your son. His wise father texted right back, 
How sad. Too bad, you're a dad. <laughs> I hope my talk this morning will help you avoid the plight of this student. The title of my devotional today is Money Matters, Living Joyfully Within Your Means. To introduce this theme, I would like to get personal and briefly share some things I have learned over my lifetime about money and joyful living. A long, 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 long time ago, Juanita Ray and I met while attending BYU. We played racquetball together, courted for a time, and were married in the temple. As newlyweds, we had no money. We lived in a tiny two-room apartment with low ceilings. We bought clothes from DI, and we ate her family's food storage. We drank powdered milk for almost a year. Yuck! But we had each other, we had our love, and we had the gospel. It was a good year. We learned you don't need a lot of money to be happy. I graduated, got a good job, and we started drinking whole milk. <laughs> Heavenly. I had been taught to pay 10% to the Lord save 10% to invest, and live on the rest. Juanita and I did this as we created our family budgets over the years. We were fruitful, and after 25 years, we had lots of kids who filled our mortgage-free home. We also had solid investments. We learned about the miracle of compound interest. If you consistently save a little money and invest it in a broad stock market fund, that might money naturally multiplies. Children and grandchildren also multiply. <laughs> then came the hard part. Though Juanita and I were financially set for a long life together, and we anticipated many missions, lots of travel and lots of grandkids, life didn't go as planned. Juanita got cancer. She fought valiantly, but cancer won. I learned that there are some things that matter much more than money, and I learned the hard way that you can't take it with you. After Juanita died, I was a lonely, single dad. I couldn't sleep. I got angry easily. I didn't eat well. To compensate, I wasted a lot of money. I learned how foolish it is to spend when you are hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Then a miracle happened. God sent me an amazing, beautiful widow named Tammy Mulford. It was so fun to be dating again and to have money this time. <laughs> Tammy and I fell in love and were married in the temple. What pure joy. What a good woman. Takes a remarkable person to marry a stuffy old BYU professor with so many kids. Juanita and I are both eternally grateful to Tammy. It is never easy to join two families like we did, but Tammy and I have learned that money is useful when you are blending a large family, especially one with 12 children, six in-laws, and 21 grandchildren. One final note. When the kids were older, Tammy took the initiative to go back to graduate school. 
Now she blesses many as an excellent marriage and family therapist and an adjunct professor right here at BYU. This was only an option because we had the financial resources to do it. We learned that money makes important things possible. Okay, that's my life story. Let's get back to today's theme. Money matters, living joyfully within your means. Finances can be perplexing for many of us, but this morning I hope to make them a little simpler. I will first briefly explore why money matters to families. Then I will share five practices to help you live within your means and thus claim the blessings of joy. This is exciting. Let's get started. First, money matters. The choices we make with money are at the heart of mortality's test. Will we choose to waste our resources upon transitory pleasures, or will we choose to serve others and build up the kingdom of God? Will we choose to act on impulse and burden ourselves with debt, or will we act prudently so that money becomes a tool for family joy and not the cause of stress and worry? Money matters to a husband and wife in their marital relationship. Indeed, much research shows that financial difficulties are often associated with marital stress and even divorce. Dr. Bernard Paduska reflected, the saying, married for better or worse, or until debt do us part, seems to reflect today's marital realities more accurately than does the traditional vow. A word of advice for those seeking an eternal mate, and you know who you are. <laughs> an important criterion for a future spouse is the way they handle money. Money also matters to parents and children. Parents have a sacred responsibility to rear their children in love and righteousness. And this includes teaching their children about finances. Elder Joseph B. Worthland taught, too many of our youth get into financial difficulty because they never learn proper principles of financial common sense at home. Teach your children while they are young. There are many ways parents can teach children about money. One practice our family adopted was to establish a family bank. Until they graduate from high school, our children may invest their money in and borrow money from the family bank. Money invested earns 10% interest per month, compounded monthly. Wow, that's a good deal. <laughs> money borrowed, though, also costs 10% interest compounded monthly. This arrangement quickly teaches children that the smart decision is to save and earn interest, and that the foolish decision is to borrow and pay interest. Though money is important, we must view its purpose with an eternal perspective. Money is meant to be a means for serving our families and our God. When consecrated to those purposes, it is of great worth. However, when money becomes an end unto itself, it derails us from our eternal purposes. When we focus too much of our time, talents, and energy on making money, we sin. The Apostle Paul taught this. 
The love of money is the root of all evil. Okay, you've seen how money matters. Now let's look at li living joyfully within your means. We must build our financial houses upon the rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fortunately, our prophets, seers, and revelators, Christ's representatives on the earth, have given us clear financial guidance. I have distilled five distinct themes from their messages over the years. One, create, use, and update a family budget. Two, minimize and eventually eliminate debt. Three, invest early, consistently, and wisely to build a financial reserve. Four, don't do dumb things with your money. <laughs> and five, be generous and share your resources with others. In a recent First Presidency message, President Thomas S. Monson taught these practices succinctly. We encourage you to look to the condition of your finances. We urge you to discipline yourselves in your purchases to avoid debt. Pay off debt as quickly as you can and free yourselves from this bondage. Save a little money regularly to gradually build a financial reserve. And I imagine President Monson chuckled as he wrote, many more people could ride out the storm-tossed waves in their economic lives if they had a supply of food and clothing and were debt-free. Today, we find that many have followed this counsel in reverse. They have a supply of debt and are food-free. Let's examine more closely these five practices that can help you move toward joyfully living within your means. The first practice is to create, use, and continually update a budget. Elder Robert D. Hales taught, we help our children to be provident providers by establishing a family budget. We should regularly review our family income, savings, and spending plan in family council meetings. A budget is simply a plan for how you're going to spend the money that is available to you. Everyone, including you, should have a budget. To create a budget, you simply determine your spendable income, allocate it to different categories of expenses. Then you track your actual spending against your budget. A budget is a living document that is modified as conditions warrant. I personally suggest that every budget should allocate at least 10% tithes and offerings, and that most budgets should allocate at least 10% to long-term savings. You can find sample budgets on numerous intersites, such as the Marriott School's excellent site, personalfinance.byu.edu. In my mind, the most overlooked budget category is miscellaneous. Unexpected expenses always come up that don't fit neatly in your budget categories. Perhaps a large car repair, or heavens forbid, a root canal, or here at BYU, maybe an engagement ring. <laughs> in marriage relationships, both husband and wife should have a say in budget creation. In many marriages, one partner is a saver and the other partner is a spender. You might ask yourself what you are but both play an important role 
in their marriage. Early in marriage, it's a great blessing when the saver can help the spender stay within the budget. Elder Robert D. Hales poignantly illustrated this point in the following story. We were newly married and had very little money. I saw a beautiful dress in a store window and suggested to my wife that if she liked it, we would buy it. Mary went into the dressing room of the store. After a moment, the sales clerk came out, brushed by me, and returned the dress to its place in the window. As we left the store, I asked my wife, what happened? She replied, it was a beautiful dress, but we can't afford it. Those words went straight to my heart. Elder Hales finished the story by saying, I have learned that the three most loving words are, I love you, and the four most caring words for those we love are, we can't afford it. The spender can also play an important role in the marriage. If after a period of time the family is doing well financially, the spender can take the lead in budgeting for some special expenditures that would strengthen relationships, perhaps a second honeymoon or a nice family vacation. I invite each of you to create, use, and update some form of a budget for the rest of your life. The second practice is to minimize and eventually eliminate debt. President Thomas S. Monson recently quoted President J. Reuben Clark Jr. when he said, Once in debt, interest is your companion every minute of the day and night. You cannot shun it or slip away from it. And whenever you get in its way or cross its course or fail to meet its demands, it crushes you. So, is any debt legitimate? The Council of Church Leaders on Debt was recently summarized by Elder Robert D. Hales. Some debt incurred for education, a modest home, or a basic automobile may be necessary to provide for a family. I might add that necessary debt for a BYU education usually pays off quite well. A recent study revealed that the cost of a BYU education had the highest return on investment of any university in Utah. Go Cougars! <laughs> Here I would like to interject what I believe is the biggest financial mistake made by recent BYU graduates. It's buying a house that is beyond their means. There's a reason for this problem. When you apply for a mortgage loan, you are asked about your debts. Tithing represents a debt worth 10% of your income, reducing the amount you can afford for a house payment. Please treat 10% of your income as a debt when considering how much you can really afford to pay for a home. Now, if you already have debts, the key is to include a debt repayment category in your budget. The money allocated to this category is applied each month as an extra payment to the debt with the highest interest rate until it's eliminated. Again, personalfinance.byu.edu has excellent advice on this topic. The prophetic counsel is clear, but sometimes temptations are very challenging, even after being debt-free for years. Let me make a confession here and share another personal experience. 
Tammy and I have committed to follow the prophet and live debt-free within our means. We don't have any mortgage nor any other debt. We do make a car payment each month, but instead of paying a car dealership, we make a deposit in our own car savings account. A little while ago, we took about four years of car savings and went shopping for a new car. We really liked a base model Toyota, and it fit our budget perfectly. We thought we were ready to buy, but then the salesman showed us the next model up. It was much nicer, but was a little more than what we had saved. But then, and this was the temptation, we were led to a top-of-the-line model, a real dream machine. Now, I've never really been infatuated with cars, but driving that vehicle was a transcendent experience. <laughs> it was so smooth, so powerful. I wanted it. I really wanted it. And Tammy wanted it, too. We had just one problem. The car cost much more than what we had in our car savings. The salesperson enthusiastically showed us that with our large down payment, our monthly car payment would be a pittance, very affordable. What would be wrong with a little debt if we could get what we wanted now? We wouldn't be irresponsible. We were so tempted. Fortunately, Tammy and I don't make major financial decisions on the spot. We talk about it, pray about it, sleep on it, and make the final decision when we're fresh and hopefully more inspired. So we went home and tried to talk ourselves into this brief excursion into debt. But alas, we didn't feel good about it, so we decided to wait. When I told this story to my family finance class at BYU, one student asked, Dr. Hill, why don't you just buy a used version of the car that you want? It's better financially anyway. He was right. It is more economical to buy a used low-mileage car than to buy a new car. I got excited. Right after class, I searched carfax.com <laughs> and found a beautiful car with low miles in Rexburg, Idaho that fit our budget. My dad lives in Rexburg, so I asked him to take a test drive. He called back and said that was the best car he'd ever driven. <laughs> if I didn't buy it, he would. <laughs> I bought the car on the spot, over the phone, on condition that my wife would approve it, though I knew she would. Our anniversary was coming up, so I decided to surprise Tammy. I asked her to give me 24 hours to celebrate with a little getaway. We packed our bags and headed north on I-15. Tammy kept guessing where we were headed, and it's impossible to get anything over on Tammy. But this time I did. <laughs> but I just kept saying to her, uh, you'll just have to see where we're going, dear. She had no clue. When we neared the car dealership, I said, hey, let's just stop here for a moment. We walked into the showroom, and there was our gorgeous, new-looking, used car, draped in happy anniversary balloons. Tammy squealed in delight and nearly hyperventilated. <laughs> but a few seconds later, she got her breath, and she got concerned, and she protested, but Jeff, we can't afford this new car. When she heard that we could pay cash for this used car, 
She hugged me, gave me a kiss, and said I was the smartest husband ever. <laughs> that is an experience I will always remember. I can honestly tell you that when you are true to a commitment to live debt-free within your means, you can live joyfully and claim blessings. The third practice is to invest early, consistently, and wisely to build a financial reserve. Elder Joe J. Christensen said in the April 1999 General Conference, there are those with average incomes who, over a lifetime, do amass some means, and there are those who receive large salaries who do not. What is the difference? It is simply spending less than they receive, saving along the way, and taking advantage of the power of compound interest. Let me illustrate this with a little animation. Albert Einstein is quoted as saying, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Let's consider an example of this wonder. Imagine there are four 20-year-old BYU students, each with $10,000 to invest now in preparation for retirement in 2065. Let's compare different investment options, assuming similar returns to the past few decades. The first student does not trust the financial system, and he puts his money under his bed in a strongbox. In 50 years, he still has $10,000. The second student puts her money in a savings account, which averages about 2.5% annual return. Because of compound interest, it doubles every 25 years. When she retires, she has $40,000. The third puts his money in a safe government bond mutual fund, which averages more, about 4.5% annual return. It doubles every 15 years. By 2065, the $10,000 has become almost $100,000. The fourth puts her money in a broad diversified stock market fund, which averages about 10% return. It doubles every seven and a half years. In 50 years, it doubles nearly seven times, and the $10,000 has become more than $1 million. That, my friends, is the miracle of compound interest. When you consistently invest like the fourth student, you have the peace of mind that comes from knowing you will be able to retire in the future and that if an emergency happens now, you have a reserve. I invite my students in class, and I invite you today to begin to invest now. If you don't have much money, that's okay. You can start as small as $1 a month automatic withdrawal from your checking account through some mutual funds that cater to the small investor. However, in this regard, it is very important to remember that though money matters, it is simply a means to do something more important. Having a lot of money when you retire because you've made wise investments is meaningless in and of itself. The money only has value as it is used to do God's work with your family and elsewhere. The next practice is simply don't do dumb things with your money. When dealing with money, use your common sense. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. My first suggestion is to avoid speculation. 
Speculation is any investment that promises a greater than market rate return. Most of these are scams or extremely high-risk ventures. In a letter from the First Presidency, members of the Church were warned about those who use relationships of trust to promote risky or even fraudulent investment and business schemes. I know of a young widow who invested part of the proceeds of her husband's life insurance settlement with a close friend with the promise of a high guaranteed interest rate. Though the investment paid out for several years, one day the checks stopped coming. Soon thereafter, the company filed for bankruptcy and the widow lost many tens of thousands of dollars. She felt betrayed that the sacred funds her late husband had provided had been lost in this way. It is important to realize that the only way to get greater than market rate returns is to take greater than market rate risks. This means if you put money into investments that promise large returns, get-rich-quick schemes, you likely stand to lose much. It is much better to take the get-rich-slowly approach and invest wisely for the long term. My next suggestion is to avoid home equity loans. When property values go down, home equity loans can lead you to be upside down in your home. Now, this doesn't mean you are standing on your head in your living room. It does mean you cannot sell your home for what you owe on it. When that happens, you become a prisoner in your home because you can't sell it. Worse yet, many in this situation have lost homes because they couldn't afford the payments when financial challenges occurred. Please, in the future and now, be very careful when considering a home equity loan. Another suggestion is to avoid impulse purchases. I recommend you make a policy to never make a major purchase on the spot. Go home, have dinner, talk about it with your spouse or someone else that you trust. Pray about the decision and decide later whether or not to make the purchase. You can remember this advice with the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T. Don't make major purchases when you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. The final practice for living joyfully within your means is to be generous and share your resources with others. The prophet Jacob provides us with some excellent counsel about riches and how they should be used. But before ye seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. And after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches if ye seek them, and ye will seek them for the intent to do good. We have a special responsibility to bless the poor with our resources. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland eloquently taught us that we are to do what we can to deliver any that we can from poverty that holds them captive and destroys so many of their dreams. Contributions to the Church beyond tithing can be helpful. Elder Holland also said, Be as generous as circumstances permit in your fast offering and other humanitarian, educational, and missionary contributions. There are also so many ways to use your means personally in anonymous and ad hoc giving. Just one example. Tammy has taught me to be much more generous when we go out to eat. 
She was a waitress earlier in life, so she is very aware of how much work servers do just to make ends meet. She has encouraged me to stop being stingy and to be generous in my tipping. I have to tell you, it feels so good to give an unexpectedly large tip. I appreciate Tammy's generous spirit. I invite you to be thoughtful and prayerful as you find ways to be generous and share with your resources with others. I promise that you'll feel joy as you do so. Okay, we've had a good talk today. Let me conclude with a quote and my testimony. Elder Robert D. Hales taught, we must practice the principles of provident living, joyfully living within our means, being content with what we have, avoiding excessive debt, and diligently saving and preparing for rainy day emergencies. Brothers and sisters, I have a testimony that when we understand that money matters and when we take the time to budget, eliminate debt, invest wisely, make smart decisions, and share our resources, we receive both material and spiritual blessings. I testify that we must build our financial homes upon the rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we do this, when the rains of recessions descend, the floods of layoffs come, and the winds of high interest rates blow and beat upon our houses, our houses will not fall, for they will be founded upon the rock of Jesus Christ. I invite you, I plead with you, to live joyfully within your means for the rest of your life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and recentering. Today's theme was In the Likeness of God, with thoughts from Michael Middleton and Dr. Jeffrey Hill. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.